0: expected outcomes flows down to all people in the organization, because it really starts to develop innovation, and I say innovation, you know, microtech innovation, smaller things at lower levels in the organization. When you start to unlock that, your productivity and quality of what you're doing really just accelerates.
1: Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world Their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at DisruptiveInnovations.net.
1: Good morning, friends. David Wright here, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this morning, I am lucky enough to be joined by Scott DeForge. Scott, pleasure to have you on.
0: Morning, David. Great to be here.
1: Absolutely. So, Scott, for those of our listeners who may not know, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role?
0: Sure. I'm currently a global CIO for Fleetcor, and Fleetcor is a uh, global payments company. We have roughly 10,000 plus employees and operate probably in the over 34 countries around the world.
1: Fantastic. Honored to have the, you, someone of your pedigree and representing a company like Fleet Corps on today. So going to be interested in learning a little bit more about your backstory and as well as some of the things that you guys are up to at Fleet Corps now. Before we do, we'd like to get just one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave our listeners with today to start out the episode.
0: Starting with the hard questions first, one piece of advice. I look back on my career, David, and I think the one thing that I'd give folks advice on, especially those early in their careers, I think I tend to focus on what I could do. The whole, let me put uh, Atlas, let me put the weight of the world on my shoulders and I can push it through. And I think as I've traveled throughout my career and I'm old now compared to probably a lot of your listeners is just the power of teams and the development of your talent and the development of the people around you. And you find as you get older in your career, the more and more time i spend on that, the better the benefit for the, the output of the entire team and the company. So I'd say that's the one thing. People are very important, but developing those people and developing the team around you is one piece of advice I'd have for folks.
1: I love that advice. The, the first thing you said too, just made me think about how my sheer willpower on something too can often get me in trouble, especially as an entrepreneur. If I'm just trying to will something forward, it, it often can lead to more angst where sometimes the best action is actually no action. Or sometimes, like you're saying, it really takes a team of people in order to get it done. How am I investing my time in, in developing those individuals? Just really great advice to start the episode. Yeah, so, and I
0: think it gets into diversity is a hot topic today, yeah. but Sometimes that's just diversity of opinion around complex problems and how to approach a problem. And I remember when I got my MBA, a professor gave uh, an analogy. He's like, listen, if you only look through one window in a house, you only get the perspective of that view. If you engage others looking through a lot of other windows, you get a true picture of the entire floor plan. So I've, I've always taken that little analogy. And you, know, you like to apply it when you're, whether you're trying to innovate, solve a complex problem or whatever it is, it's super important.
1: It's a great one. I'm going to take that one. So, Scott, let's get into a little bit about how you started out and how you got to the point that you're at today. Tell us a little bit about your journey.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, being global CIO, most people would probably think, "Hey, he went, and got a computer science degree." And I started out actually as an electrical engineer at the University of Michigan and studied electrical engineering and. Really got into chip design at the time, right? So this was probably in the late 80s, right? Just to give everyone a little bit of a time frame. And, and I got into chip design. And when you're in chip design, you're doing a lot of programming to design your chips. So I kind of got into computer programming by accident, so to speak. I eventually took an internship. I'll leave the company name out, but they were a more of a traditional electrical engineering internship. Didn't have the greatest experience. So I started to reflect on, hey, what else can I do with this degree? And took some more computer science degrees and programming degrees. and was lucky enough that at the time, Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture, was hiring Just they liked hiring engineers. They like problem solvers. And they're like, we'll train you. We'll give you the, the training you need. And they were doing a lot of custom systems implementation back then, as opposed to package software like they do today. And that's really how I ended up getting into computer science and into IT. Once I did that, fell in love with it. Love the challenge, love the change you were implementing, loved the problem solving, the value you are adding to companies. And from there, I, I probably followed a traditional track with them for about five years. Then a client hired me. And then I had another inflection point in my career. Where I got my MBA at the University of Chicago thinking, I'm going to go into finance. I'm going to make the career change and go into finance. But that happened to be right around the late 90s, which, as we all know, it was something else happened in the late 90s. You had the dot com boom. And so didn't go down the finance route, but went down an entrepreneurial route. I joined a couple of startups. First one lasted all of 11 months before it went under. And then I joined one that lasted about, it was probably about six or seven years and really enjoyed my time there because it got me really focused not only on building out technology, but when you're in a startup, you're out selling, right? And so you got into hey, what's a value proposition? How do you sell? what we're doing and what we believe the value we can add to companies. And so I got not only on the technology side, I had product responsibility, but I eventually got P&L responsibility. It was running a sales team and running an implementation team and running a product team and got to do a lot of interesting stuff. And you know, got a lot of opportunities to sit in front of customers to explain what we were offering, sitting in front of panel discussions, different product Symposiums or conferences, so just a lot of fun before events. We got probably more on what people would consider a standard career track back in the the other Fortune 50 companies, and spent time at Inver Micro and McKesson for probably about 15 years before joining here at Corps.
1: That entrepreneurial experience, it makes sense to me why you would be attracted to these global brands. I feel oftentimes. Programmers, technologists, when they're, you know, especially when they're developing product, they can get fixed on the product they're creating. From that standpoint, they're bringing it to market and they're trying to figure out a way to sell it. You know, I feel like in that entrepreneurial role, when you're in that sales role, you're really getting that face time with the customer and working to understand, okay, what does the customer want? Like, how are we developing this from the standpoint of, customer experience and what they're looking to solve for and really being able to take that versus building something and then trying to sell it, really starting there and then developing from the standpoint of what they're looking for. And I imagine that's incredibly valuable in what you guys are doing today, Fleet Corps and the subsequent roles that would follow that entrepreneurial experience.
0: I think one of the, to your point, David, one of the interesting things, my second startup, which is in the chemical industry. So we were pitching to large multinational companies, the Dow's, the DuPont's of the world. And we had a product and you realize several of the things you had to deal with was, hey, we were offering new technology solutions right, to business problems. But the change management inside those large organizations, how they adopt technology because of the technical debt they have in their back end. You really had to pivot your offering, right, to accommodate how can they actually implement and get the value. And so I'd say that was probably one of the most valuable lessons I got out of that. And to your point, to listening to the customer, right? Listening to some of the challenges, right? It wasn't that they didn't like our value proposition, but they were thinking, how am I going to implement this right across a relatively complex organizational landscape, a complex technology landscape, so they can actually get value because that's what they're trying to do at the end of the day. And at that point in time. We were still at a nascent state in terms of our products. So taking that feedback and altering the product to be able to do that was you know, of great value to us and allowed us to succeed, to be quite honest with you.
1: It's funny how, as a technologist, I had to learn how important organizational change management really is and how for these technology projects that I've done over the course of my career and, and rollouts and so on to be successful the value of human connection or the importance rather of of human connection and making people feel heard and spending the time to really have those. It's about the people. It's about connecting human to human. Meanwhile, we're doing these like huge technology initiatives, of course, but really, if I fail to recognize that and spend that time, the perceived value of a technology rollout is in user adoption and in their experience and in what they're telling their leadership, not how well I feel that I implemented it. So if I'm not spending the time to enroll those people and really get them behind what we're doing and then make sure they understand it. And for a company with legacy systems, technical debt, particularly like industrial companies or other types of late adopters, it's a tricky equation. So it makes sense to me you'd cite that as being super valuable experience because I've had to, to learn that the hard way over the course of my career.
0: It's interesting. One of the things you think about moments in your career that stuck out, it was early in my career as at Anderson, and we were at some training symposium where we were doing presentations, you kind of case study type things. And I had a partner, I was up presenting, a partner asked me about Change management. And back in those days, Anderson had a dedicated change management organization. So I thought it was the layup question. I said, well, we have a dedicated change managing organization. And he gave me a lecture on how change management's everyone's responsibility, right? Not just stuck with me. It's not just a separate track, but everyone needs to be thinking about it from the people doing the development and the product and the people selling to, to the people implementing. So I thought that was, you know, didn't realize how insightful with the time until I got another 10 years under my belt. It realized Hebrew was really right. To be successful, you got to be thinking about that.
1: I love that. I'm going to bring that to my team, actually. Here's another question for you, Scott, that we like to ask our guests. I mean, you, you mentioned some really great actual advice up front. Over the course of your life, right, and your career, personally and professionally, what was another one of the most important things you learned, and what was life before learning it and after learning it?
0: Yeah, I'd probably say it's a... Played into personalities. All I have as an engineer, right? So, the engineer, you pride yourself on solving difficult problems and you don't like to give up on difficult problems, right? It's, it feeds into your ego and your mindset, your analytical mindset. And I think one of the first things, you know, when posed with the difficult problem, the first thing I always did when I was younger, is we jump on it. Yes, we can do it. And sometimes the art of saying no is more powerful, or not now, is the other thing I, I did. So, I think sometimes stepping back and looking at things that are too hard, learning to say no in your career, right, whether it's to a difficult project, or whether it's unrealistic timeframes from your management. And having that debate is to say, yeah, that oftentimes when you say no, people want to understand why. You can get to the heart, you can actually get to a solution, so I'd say. That'd be the other thing, other piece of advice I'd have to say to people, sometimes saying no can actually be more powerful than taking on the bigger challenge and delivering against it.
1: That really hits home for me. And I love that you brought up ego, because that was something that, for me, my ego would drive my desire to solve those problems and make it happen. And just like, by any means necessary, I'm going to figure it out. And I learned, again, the hard way that just wasn't, it wasn't sustainable. It wasn't- Not sustainable,
0: um, that's for sure.
1: And it caused me a lot of undue angst too, right? Because it just trying to, it's a lot of weight on an individual. And in a lot of instances, it was my own making. So that is good. What about a time that sticks out in your mind, Scott, is a time that you were challenged or that a project failed, but you took away a really profound lesson from the instance? Is there a pivotal point in your career where something happened and bleeding out of that, you were you're for the better?
0: Yeah, I'd probably say a couple of things jumped to mind. I think one plays into what we just talked about on the learning to say no or not now, but it also plays into the change management component. And back when I was in Ingram micro, we did, we we're doing global SAP ERP rollouts, right? And for anyone who's ever done a project like that, they're big, complex projects with big budgets and missing dates, cost money. And we had a solution that, that worked implement it in other countries. We knew the solution worked, but we went into a particular country, which I'll leave out of the the discussion, and it really was a change management issue. We didn't realize, right, because we were thousands of miles away. We were in California, our implementers were in Australia, so we're constantly dealing with 18-hour time zone differences. We didn't realize that the change management, the training, the user readiness hadn't taken place. We'd gotten some messages that was yellow and everything else. And at the time, we didn't really have the business engagement we needed. And rather than saying, hey, we got to stop this project, you know, back to the no, until we get the appropriate engagement, we thought we as the project team could make up that. And so we just worked harder. And we did for others where they should have been doing for themselves. And thinking we were doing them a favor and thinking, hey, we're going to get this thing delivered on time and on budget. And that's what people want from us. That was a challenge. And really the appropriate thing at that time would have been to say, pause. We don't have the right engagement from the management team. They need to be putting in more effort and really helping us in the implementation. And that would have led to more successful outcomes. As a result, we had a a messy go live and we disrupted the business for a month to two months, which was very painful. And so I'd say that was the biggest lesson learned out of that.
1: That's a good one. It reminds me about how I've had to learn the courage to have those difficult conversations with leadership, where you're trying to deliver something on time and on budget. But then if I do try to force it through and make up the difference, kind of like you said, and really, you know, I'm helping these people out, but then it does hit the skids. You know, it's not like at that point, I could be like, well, do you know what I I did for you? You know, you guys were messing up over here that, well, why didn't you say something to us? Like, that would be the exactly what I would say
0: pain and work. You put your thre- team through because you're personally trying to will it. You force them to will it. You know All that effort goes unrecognized. and You, you can start to lose your team at that point at the same point
1: Some great lessons. Well, I, I want to dive a little bit more into the work that you guys are doing at Fleet Court today. Before we do, I always like to pause and just ask about your favorite book or literary piece, either that you've been reading currently or all time whatever is speaking to you in this moment?
0: I think one of the things that's interesting, I don't know if it's all time, maybe it's just top of mind, put it that way, in terms of something, because we were having a discussion, we had a bit of an offsite, and we were talking about leadership. And there was a training course I went through at McKesson, and you had to read a book, and it was followed by a half-day kind of exercise that we did. And it was with our leadership team, but the name of the book was um, Multipliers, You know, how the best leaders make everyone smarter. And it really got into the different type of leaders there are. And it focused really on the most successful leaders are those that are multipliers and bring the most out of their teams and how they went about doing it, which a large part of that got into coaching and providing context to your team and making sure that filters down, not just to, you know, your next layer, but making sure that message of, context why we're doing something and expected outcomes flows down to all people in the organization, because it really starts to develop innovation. And I say innovation, you know, microtech innovation, smaller things at lower levels in the organization. When you start to unlock that, your productivity and quality of what you're doing really just accelerates. And so that's one thing yeah, I took away from that. Just making sure as as a leader, a large part of your job, I get to attend meetings, I get to attend other areas, right, and get a lot of insight. And I can take that back and just tell people what to do and just organize things appropriately. But sharing that context and making sure everyone understands it. You know, when you get into things like agile, it's a large part of the principle of agile in terms of what's the value we're trying to attain. And you can right. see that permeate during some of the modern day, you know, methodologies and the likes. So and that just stuck with me and something that, you know, I make sure I constantly do as a leader and force my leaders to do as well.
1: I think you just totally landed the difference in my mind between leadership and management, which is how am I working to touch, move, and inspire those around me? And I think I've never heard it summed up like you just did, and it's fantastic and super practical. But that taking the time to set the context and having that trickle down, I think it is also a, a, a micro-innovation. Basically, I'm trying to enable my team to be free thinkers or self-starters within the construct of what we're looking to accomplish, right? As opposed to this is what we're doing, this is the next step. And because in my experience too, the limitation of that too is I'll have X number of team members who will complete that task and then they're done. And, you know, until there is the next thing to be done, there's a delta there between when that first task is finished and when the next one begins that is just time lost. If I'm inspiring them as to to what we're doing, they're going to move on to the, the next thing without me even needing to ask them to do it because they're excited about where we're tracking to because. I explain to them where we're looking to go at a macro.
0: I like how you made the distinction between management and leadership. So you got to do both, right? The management components, making sure, hey, I've got the right tools for my people. I've got the right skilled resources. I've got the right methodology. And We all tend to focus on, right? And you go do that and you have to have it. That's the table stakes. But once you have that, you know, getting down to the context and the like, that's really where you get the kind of the multiplying effect. Right. Obviously, if you don't have the right tools and the right people, you're not going to get much of anywhere. So we all tend to focus on that at first, but that's really the table stakes and the unleashing the potential of your team gets down to the context and the coaching. Well
1: so Scott, let's talk a little bit more about your current role. So global CIO, Fleet Corps. What's your vision for IT and digital as it's derived from the overall mission of Fleet Corps? What does that look like by way of maybe some of the key initiatives you guys are focused on, like the things you guys are working on today?
0: It's provide first just a little bit more context in terms of how Fleet Corps is structured. We're a federated company, right? In terms of, you know, Fleet Corps Technologies operates really in, let's call it, three main lines of businesses. I've organized my three, four main lines of businesses. I've organized my staff really around. One kind of having a CTO who's in charge of product development lined up with each of our lines of businesses. And they own really the product development, partnering with that group around the strategy, what we're trying to do. And then I've centralized other functions such as our infrastructure, security, some level of PMO. Um, we have an enterprise architecture group, things that can be leveraged by each of the kind of those CTOs. So that's how we've structured. And Sleep Core as a company, we're going. We kind of went through a transition as I joined. Right, we grew a lot through acquisition since going public in 2010. That's how we grew the business. We grew through acquisition. But once you get to a certain size, your ability to continue yours to through acquisition gets harder and harder because those acquisitions get larger, they get more complex, and they get riskier. So we made a a transition from hey. We're going to grow through acquisition to, yes, we need to continue to grow through acquisition, but we got to grow organically. And that's a shift really from a kind of call it a project mindset to a product mindset. So we're making that kind of transition from, hey, we've got an existing customer base and we need to continue to evolve our products to serve and to add more value so we can get more organic growth amongst that customer base. So those are kind of some of the challenges as you look at a company in transition. What we're doing, also, just we've got a big legacy technology base from our acquisitions, right? Which we didn't do a lot of integration. So that's kind of my problem statement on: Hey, we want to continue to innovate our products, but we have some legacy technology. So we came up with really, I'd say, a transformation plan that was really centered around. I'll we'll call it kind of four pillars. One was. Hey, we've got to modernize some of our core systems, right? So just things we acquired, we have to go through a modernization process, which brings in, in place you know, cloud technologies and some of our more modern technologies, consolidating back end systems onto single platforms. Second kind of pillar was our digital. It was pre-pandemic when I came in, we didn't have a huge digital footprint in terms of how we interact with our customers. And so we started down a path of hey we have to build that capability, right which is not just a architectural technology, but that's a people component. We have to build out that capability. The third area was around data in terms of how do we leverage our data and then the fourth was really something we called I originally called it delivery acceleration, but then I called it value acceleration right How do we get more nimble at delivering product right to the marketplace right and that gets into the Part of it's your Agile journey, part of it's your DevSecOps journey, part of it's the ICD journey. Those things work in place. So those are kind of my four pillars, all supplement or surrounded by kind of a microservices based cloud architecture. And so that's what we've been on. We've been on that journey now for a couple of years. We've got, a, I don't think it's a journey that has an end. It continues to evolve uh, as we acquire additional companies and get additional technologies that's kind of the journey we've been on here at Fleetcor.
1: So Scott, maybe you could also tell us a little bit about some of the biggest challenges that Fleetcor is facing as an organization today. And I'm, you kind of started touching on a few of them, which are common to global organizations that are heavy in M&A, but any other big challenges that Fleetcor is facing as an organization right now that stick out in your mind?
0: Yeah, beyond M&A, I'd say the other, you know, it's interesting where we are a business, and we're running a business, controlling SaaS costs, right? So it's been interesting to watch how the industry has evolved, you know, from the traditional buy a license, pay maintenance on it, and host it in your own data center. And Certainly, we all love the flexibility and agility and quick time to implement of SaaS solutions in a lower TOC, but controlling SaaS costs gets very challenging and difficult it's all OPEX and yeah. it can grow very quickly. But if it's not governed, when I say governed, it's hey the adoption of the tool, the contracts behind the tool, because a lot of times when you get started quickly, you don't spend a lot long, long time looking at the contract and assessing the potential cost. Whereas when you're buying a big license, you spend lots of time looking at the contract and what's my cost going to be. So I'd say that's one challenge for us as a company. Then the other challenge, which isn't going to be unique to people, is just talent. When I say talent, it's the acquisition of talent. It's the development of talent. It's retaining talent. And I'd say that's the other area we spend quite a bit of time on. So I'd say those are probably the other two biggest challenges for us beyond just the MA and some of the baggage MA comes with that comes with mergers and acquisitions.
1: if that makes sense. How about some of the most innovative technologies that you're really excited about that you're either starting to roll out now or that you have on the roadmap? Anything that, that comes to mind in that arena?
0: and probably not surprising to people, but you, you preface your question, things I'm excited about. So I'll take that lead. I'd say really our, our data modernization pillar that I re- referenced earlier in terms of our overall modernization framework, including the AI component. And that and AI is a hot topic today, even with the federal government. But I think you know, looking at that, know, that gets me excited about some of the things we're doing there. It's it's not just, hey, how can we leverage AI to help meet our business goals, but some of the things we're looking at to say, how how can we leverage AI to accelerate product delivery, whether it's in automated testing, whether it's in some of the coding and development. And then, you know, the flip side to that is, you know, probably one of our earliest areas of adoption in terms of AI, I mean, how do we keep the bad guys out right we're a payments company we got a lot of bad guys interested in our data interested in our customers data and you know we've been leveraging ai to help us in that battle as well so i'd say that's probably one of the areas i'm probably most excited about
1: another question i i like to cover at this point too i mean and we covered a number of best practices but to your cio peers who might be listening today any other best practices in your experience that that you and your team follow that you might look to share with our peers today?
0: Yeah, I'd say one of the things I've been fortunate at being at Core is really is the CIO having a seat at the table with our executive staff, right? When you look at the CIO role or CTO role, where it sits organizationally can sometimes tend to limit the value you can bring to the organization. So, you know, one of the things I've done, I was allowed to do was interject myself into you know, the company strategy sessions. I sit in all the staff meetings, right back to my discussion around context, right, and understand the company strategy and then helping to evolve the, the technology strategy around that. And then I referenced uh, earlier in terms of how I've structured my group organizationally, which is having kind of these CTO roles tied up with each of our lines of businesses and making sure those guys are plugged into those business groups as well. So I think really having a seat at that table, getting that context, and then having a voice to say, how can technology, whether it be from a product perspective or a productivity perspective, can really help move the organization forward. So I'd say, one, don't just think of yourself as an engineering team. You've got to think of yourself as part of the business, sure. which probably isn't earth-shattering, but it's just something to remind yourself of and make sure you have that seat at the table.
1: It's a great best practice, and it's a great reminder you know, to advocate. For oneself as a, an IT executive in that role. And I think for super relevant to many different industries, one that comes to mind and, you know, our listeners will know we have a lot of uh, healthcare folks on. So often we see that IT is siloed from, you know, the clinical operational leadership and context is the first thing that gets lost when it comes to them leading, managing their teams, because how can you have that context if you're siloed from those other leaders? So great practical best practice for sure. So Scott, I got a couple last questions for you. One would be, you guys are in the global payments, financial services industry. Where do you see, and I always caveat that you don't have a crystal ball, But where do you see that industry going in the future? And or what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes?
0: It's funny. Some of that changes based on what geography you're in.
1: But Certainly,
0: look at the payments industry and some of the things that are going on. The continued digitization of the payments, right? And Believe it or not, the U.S. is far behind some of the other geographies in that space. And then you get governance coming in, which is interesting too, to try to accelerate that digitization, but you get pushback against that because people don't want all their transactions and information going through governments. And then just the right to data consumer and even in the B2B space, company data and data privacy and the increasing regulations around that are all of the things I see evolving, right? Very quickly, both from a regulatory and governance perspective. So you have this push to. I want things, whether it be in our our favorite crypto world, to move instantaneously, very quickly without a lot of visibility. And then you got to the other side, you've got regulation around data privacy and everything else. So you're watching those kind of two worlds collide is probably super interesting. So I'm not sure if there's a lot of insight there, but just something for folks to watch as they look at legislation coming and they look at crypto and they look at the continued need to digitize and get rid of paper and old-fashioned ways of paying people. It's super interesting to watch all those things evolving at the same time.
1: It really is. Scott, this has been great. I mean, my last question for you that we like to ask all our guests would be just, if you could go back five, 10, even 20 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self?
0: What advice would I give my younger self? I could give the typical work-life balance Make sure, or,
1: or you could tell yourself to buy Amazon stock.
0: I look at it from the one thing, maybe I did some of it myself. Don't be afraid to take risks. I look at that. And I've got four kids myself that are all starting their careers. And I was very career focused at the beginning in terms of, I don't want to say title, but just developing my career and everything else. And probably in my first 10 years when I was younger, and you can take risks when you're younger, you have less obligations. And you know, failure isn't as costly. That'd probably be the one thing I'd give myself, uh, you know, maybe having joined a startup when I was right out of college, as opposed to, hey, okay, let me go to a big brand name company. Although, you know, that benefited me as well. But don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid to take risks. I always tell my kids my biggest regret, you know, the only time I have regret in life is when I don't try something. Those are things, what if, as opposed to I tried and failed and I gave my best. I don't, I don't regret that hey, I tried my best. It just didn't work out. But not trying something and what if I'd done that? Those are the hardest things to live with. So I'd yeah. say, you know, my earlier self, take risks early on in your career. You can afford them. Life won't end. And it's funny, my wife texted me and my kids something the other day that just went through some famous people and what they were doing at age 25. Right, Harrison Ford was a famous actor now, but at age 30, he was a carpenter. Martha Stewart at age 25 was a stockbroker. It's just you know your career is not defined by your first four or five years of life. So take some rest, do some experimentation, find out what you enjoy, do that startup, tickle some of those itches, and early on in your career because it gets much harder later in life.
1: It's great advice. I mean, with disruptive innovations and disruptive innovators and everything else, I had that that window in 2017 going into 2018 where I was interviewing at all the big four, and and I was gonna go into a standard consulting track. I had a few mentors really push me to take that leap of faith. I'm so glad I did because my wife got pregnant. We were right in the danger zone where the risk was like, it's really real, but it was the best decision I ever made. So I, just great advice to end the episode. And Scott, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on today. So thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thanks, David. It's my pleasure.
1: And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.